There's a Cambridge for the black folk And a Cambridge for the whites If you challenge tradition You're in for a fight They arrested Gloria Just the other day She refused to comply Or look the other way Small townships around the country were excited about coming to Washington, D.C., and that movement helped spur the Cambridge movement. The Cambridge explosion of 63, where the city was shut down for a month, where the National Guard occupied the streets, uh, where the Klan was bombing businesses and trying to bomb churches, a couple of months ago, Baltimore musician Joe DiFilippo sent me a link to the latest song from his group, the R.J. Phillips Band. That's what you're hearing now. It's called Cambridge Town. And as I listened to the song, I looked at the black and white photo posted with it. It shows a crowd of young black people, the men in white shirts, several wearing straw fedoras. In the center is a young black woman, She's looking sharply to her left, and her left hand is blocking, perhaps pushing away, a rifle with bayonet affixed, her open palm against the barrel of the gun. The soldier holding the rifle is out of the frame to the right, but we can see his left hand holding the rifle. It's white. The notes for the song identify the woman as Gloria Richardson, and in parentheses it says, Cambridge Movement. I'd never heard of either. And on today's show, professor of African-American history and culture, Bernard Demzik, tells us about how Maryland's Eastern Shore, a century after the Emancipation Proclamation, was known as Maryland's Mississippi because of the pervasive racial oppression and discrimination about the civil rights and labor organizing that began in Cambridge, Maryland, and how that town became the site of the longest period of martial law within the United States since 1877, and how that history carries on today in movements like Black Lives Matter. And on Labor History in Two. The year was 1811, and Charles Dislandis, an enslaved sugar laborer in the New Orleans Territory, led what became one of the largest slave revolts in American history. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. James Baldwin says that the, uh, the past is not the past. The past is right now, and we are walking, talking history. That's a great way to start it. So let me, uh, let me just get some housekeeping. So what's, what's your current title, or how do, how do you ID yourself these days? Well, I am um, a professor of African-American history and culture uh, at, at UDC and also the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Excellent. But I am retired. I'm retired uh, uh, in 2017. And so I just work part-time teaching and leading tours 
at the museum. So here's here's the thing, you know, uh, I've been in touch with the R.J. Phillips band for years. Uh, they they do labor songs from time to time. They do a lot of civil rights stuff. Um, it's a good band. I like them. And, you know, so they sent me this one a couple of weeks ago, Cambridge Town. I was listening to it. Good song. And they just talked about the Cambridge movement. And I was like, I, I fancy myself, you know, fairly well informed, Bernard. But I was like, I had to look up the Cambridge movement. I didn't know what it was. And was just fascinated to find out uh, that it was something that happened locally and that it had a pretty strong labor angle. So I'm going to assume that a lot of our listeners have have never heard of the Cambridge movement either. So can you sort of give us uh, the short version? I think we should start really in the really in the late 1950s and 60s, late 1950s, when many small towns like Cambridge were impacted by two, three um, historic moments. One was um, certainly the murder of Emmett Till, which many of us consider as the spark of the modern civil rights movement. Uh, Rosa Parks said that she sat on the bus because of Emmett Till. Rosa Parks sat on the bus on December 1st, 1955. Emmett Till was lynched on uh, August 28th, 55. So three months later, the world, the nation, has become horrified by the visual lynching, very similar to George Floyd. Um, that the world could see in that open coffin in Chicago. Uh, Rosa Parks and the Dr. King's Montgomery bus boycott movement really stirred a um, stirred the imagination of people in small towns across America who thought that it was time for um, civil rights to be taken seriously. Um, I think that, uh, well, that 55 movement uh, by Dr. King and Rosa Parks led directly to two other movements, 1957, Little Rock, Arkansas, integration of Central High. And then secondly, Dr. King, Marion Barry, John Lewis, Diane Nash, they all started, uh, learning, uh, Dr. Gandhi's uh, direct action nonviolence uh, at Fisk University in Memphis. That was between 1957, 58, 59. It was that movement of those young students that launched SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, in 1960. Uh, many of these movements, by the way, even though Dr. King and John Lewis get a lot of the credits, but if you listen carefully to what I said, it was really the women. It was Diane Nash, it was Ella Baker, it was Rosa Parks. The women were really the instigators, if you will, of a direct action nonviolent campaign. Well, once SNCC was founded in 1960 at Shaw University in North Carolina, 
um, there was a call that was put out by, um, and this goes back to your labor interest, there was a call put out by oyster shuckers and crab pickers in, in Crisfield, Maryland. Now, Crisfield, Maryland has been always known as the blue crab, blue crab capital of the world, and rightfully so. Uh, these pickers and shuckers were overwhelmingly black women. Well, were they were only black women, and they were horribly treated um, like, like sharecroppers. They would work 12, 14 hours a day, and they get shortchanged in their money, and their working conditions were horrible. Um, some of those women contacted the women of SNCC, Diane Nash, and um, a new young lady in SNCC by the name of Gloria Richardson. Uh, Gloria Richardson had just come uh, from Howard University and was one of the early women organizers of SNCC in Cambridge, Maryland. However, back to Crisfield, these women requested that SNCC come to Crisfield in 61, uh, which they did. And they were, uh, the SNCC organizers were immediately attacked, jailed, and uh, were run out of town uh, uh, with the threat of violence during the Christmas break of 61 to 62. Um, that crushed the Black women's organizing movement uh, in those um, crab picker and oyster shucker factories. Uh, SNCC then went up north with a freedom ride in 61 and 62 to Cambridge, and it was relatively successful. From Cambridge, they went to Easton, Maryland in 62 and 63. Easton, Maryland desegregated rather quickly. So SNCC went back to Cambridge, and its leader was Gloria Richardson. That Cambridge movement was not only for voter registration. It was mostly, however, for better housing, better jobs, and um, unionization. And the unionization was both in the tomato fruit canning uh, factories and the seafood uh, factories um, that were up and down the, the Dor Dorchester County area. And so the original organizing was for better jobs, better safe working conditions, and for um, job employment opportunities, like to move up beyond um, blue collar to white collar, as well as, as well as decent housing. That's what kicked off the 1962 Cambridge Nonviolent Action Committee, which is a, another way of saying SNCC. The person in charge of that was Gloria Richardson. She had come out of Howard University uh, and moved back to Cambridge, where she originally was from. She came from a well-to-do middle-class family, and it was her organizing along with the Bethel AME Church and the Wall Methodist Episcopal Church that started the Cambridge movement in 62 and 63. Um, much of it was was centered around the fact that workers, uh, white workers, were being hired uh, uh, as being hired for jobs that black workers had had for a long time. What but what were being laid off because the canning industry was in decline. So as the fruit and vegetable canning industry 
dissolved in the early and mid 60s, um, whatever jobs were available for black people were then taken over by white workers. This pretty well enraged the community. And that kicked off the Cambridge movement of 63, 64, 65. There's this amazing uh, photo that the uh, that the R.J. Phillips band included with their post on SoundCloud uh, of Gloria Richardson. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I, I was in Cambridge in SNCC in 64, 65, and 66. But that particular photo was the 19th summer of 63. I was not there in the summer of 63. But she was the leader of the Cambridge movement in 63. That would have been July. And the, the city was pretty well shut down as a result of both protest and as a result of, of, of um, martial law instituted by uh, uh, the governor that, uh, that wanted to try and stop the violence that was occurring not by black people. And no black people was committing violence. The violence was being committed by the Klan, who were clandestinely going around at nighttime, bombing black churches and bombing the black school, which at that time was um, Pine Street Elementary School. So the violence really came from the white supremacists, uh, but uh, the protests were pretty uh, significant. And they brought in young students like me from Johns Hopkins, University of Maryland, Goucher College, they brought in young white students to be demonstrating and, and picketing up and down U.S. Route 50 and also Race Street, which is the main white business di district of Cambridge. That was the summer of 63. That picture was taken when the National Guard uh, had put a gun in front of her face and you saw her just pushing the, uh, the gun and the bayonet away from her. That becomes the iconic picture of Gloria Richardson in 63. Absolutely. Uh, just fierce, fierce photo. Look on her face juxtaposed uh, with the, the gun and the bayonet. It is, I don't want to come back and talk about that. Let's, let's go back. So, you know, when I, when I um, you know, did my research on the Cambridge movement, there's this little Wikipedia entry, and it talks about... Um, how the only two local factories, which were both defense contractors, had agreed not to hire any black workers as long as the whites agreed not to unionize. Um, and I was wondering if you could if you could talk a little bit about that. That's an old trick by by um, factory owners that um, they tried doing that in the '30s. With the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, they try to do that in in the sixties and seventies. Um, obviously, there I was not part of that at that time. I heard about it, but I was not part of that. But that is a that is a typical um, a ploy um, strategy or tactic by uh, factory owners to try and get white workers not to organize. Um, as you well know, the CIO was responsible for bringing black and white workers together under the same roof, under the same industrial roof. Well, the tactic certainly was tried in Cambridge, um, but unfortunately it did not work that well as a result of the 
factory owners refusing to hire black workers. Give us a sense of, of what Southern Maryland, the area that you're talking about, was, was like at this period of time and in terms of uh, black and white relations and, and, and what life was like there. Well, it wasn't technically Southern Maryland. It was the eastern shore of Maryland. So Southern Maryland would have been on the western shore, which would have included St. Mary's and Charles and Prince George's uh, counties. Those counties, and Anne Arundel County, those counties had traditionally, since the 1700s and 1800s, been heavy tobacco slave territory. So the enslaved people on the western shore were tobacco workers, uh, were, were enslaved in tobacco plantations. On the eastern shore, however, uh, which is on the other side of the bay, those counties were Talbot, Caroline, Dorchester, Somerset, Wicomico. So on the eastern shore of Maryland, it was uh, also slave territory all the way up until 1864 when Maryland uh, uh, Constitutional Convention abolished slavery on November 1st, 1864. But to your point, those counties on the eastern shore were heavy agricultural, but the addition to seafood and the seafood would have been oysters, clams, crabs, and fish. So consequently, you had these big, large seafood factories, which is where mostly black workers worked in the most dangerous and tedious jobs like shucking and picking. Um, uh, so so your, your, your economy on the Eastern Shore was both agricultural, um, seafood, but also was, was controlled by a very racist, white supremacist uh, society going down from the governor all the way down to the county lever, level and the police level. African-Americans also were not uh, permitted to vote on the Eastern Shore until the 1960s, uh, certainly with the 65 Civil Rights Voting Act. So what happens when you have these young organizers uh, coming into these, what sound like, you know, in a lot of ways, plantation or plantation-like mentality, and you have young college-educated organizers uh, coming into these areas. It sounds like it was sort of sparked to the tinder. Well, it was, and and we we used to call the Maryland's Eastern Shore, we, we used to call the Eastern Shore of Maryland, Maryland's Mississippi, because the working conditions and the relationships between the black, and they were plantations. Uh, well, you don't say plantation-like, they were plantations. They were mostly tobacco, corn, wheat, and fruit. These, these, these plantations were run by uh, uh, white plantation owners, supre white supremacists who, who treated the African-American worker as if they were uh, uh, formerly enslaved as sharecroppers. Um, one thing that you should be aware of that when you said Southern Maryland, now remember Southern Maryland is contiguous to Baltimore, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C. The eastern shore of Maryland was divided by a huge bay called the Chesapeake Bay, and people did not go to the eastern shore. It was too far away. And so you had a very old plantation society economy that existed on the eastern shore all the way up until 
1952 Bay Bridge was built. When the Bay Bridge was built in 52, that's when other people began to come to the Eastern Shore. And that was the beginning of the civil rights movement, that Bay Bridge. As a matter of fact, white supremacist uh, uh, plantation owners would always say, that damn Bay Bridge has really screwed up our economy. <laughs> we had a good life over there until they built that bridge and all those people came over from Baltimore and D.C. And, and, and messed up our economy, which is true. Um, so, yeah, you had a very a plantation society uh, uh, on the Eastern Shore that started with slavery. Now, of course, remember also, there was some real inspiration on the Eastern Shore. Harriet Tubman comes from the Eastern Shore. Frederick Douglass comes from the Eastern Shore. Harriet Tubman from Cambridge, Dorchester County. Frederick Douglass from Easton, Talbot County. And up north a little bit, uh, Henry Highland Garnett, one of the most militant African-American abolitionists, comes from uh, Chestertown area in Kent County. So, And, and also a few other uh, uh, pretty well-known African-American abolitionists and civil rights leaders all come from the Eastern Shore. And so there's a long history, a proud history of fighting for human rights and civil rights on the Eastern Shore, starting with Douglas and Tuppen. Yeah, I knew about Douglas because, of course, I'm from Rochester and uh, was very excited when I came to D.C. and, you know, knew that Douglas had come from from the Eastern Shore. Although I always wondered what he made of Rochester, which is so damn cold in the wintertime uh, compared to uh, to down here. But so let's let's talk about the the movement, which uh, so it starts and, 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 and I want to hear because you were involved, you were there. Um, and, and I want to get to, you know, this part where you, you wind up with, with, you know, uh, troops in, in Cambridge, Maryland, uh, where, where you've got, you know, Gloria with, with, uh, the soldier with his rifle in her face. It's, it's just shocking. I, I, I thought, you know, Mississippi, yes, Alabama, yes, Maryland, I had no idea. Well, also, um, also be conscious of the moment. The moment was June and July of 63. At the same time, organizing around the country was Dr. King's March on Washington. That was the summer of 63. So it was not only Cambridge and Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia, et cetera. It was also small townships around the country were excited about coming to Washington, D.C. And that movement helped spur the Cambridge movement. The Cambridge explosion of 63, where the city was shut down for a month, where the National Guard occupied the streets, uh, where the Klan was bombing businesses and uh, trying to bomb churches. All of that was a lead up to the 63 march. And so um, I was not there in 63. Remember, I got there in 64. And the reason I got there in 64 is because that was Cambridge was part of the Freedom Summer 64 organizing campaign by SNCC and by the Congress of Racial Equality. So um, uh, the Freedom Summer of 64 had small freedom schools around the country, and one of them was in Cambridge. Now, uh, and just to be fair for full disclosure, I was a very minor, minor participant in SNCC. I was not an organizer. I was not a leader. I was just one of those white students that they needed 
to hold up a picket side. Funny story. Funny story was my first bus ride to Cambridge. The uh, organizer, I think, was Reggie Robinson. He was the key organizer in 64. Uh, he was teaching us on the bus that the reason you young white people are being brought down here is because we need more white faces in order to stop uh, the police and the Klan from attacking us. Because the more white people we have, the less the Klan and the police will attack. I was really comfort, comforted about that until somebody behind him said, yes, but isn't it true that they attack the whites more than the blacks because they consider them race traitors? <laughs> and I said, oh, my goodness, where am I going? <laughs> I, was only, I was only 18 years old. Uh, but, but in all fairness to SNCC and everybody else, I was never put in harm's way. I just walked around holding up a freedom side <laughs> and was ushered out of town quickly every weekend. At 67, though, 67 was the hard year. So 63 was the National Guard. 64, 65, 66 was a constant struggle for better jobs, for unionization, for um, um, uh, better housing. Housing was terrible in the Black community. But it was 67 that really ignited Cambridge. Because if you recall, what's happening in 64, 65, and 66? Urban rebellions are occurring everywhere. Watts, Newark, Houston, Baltimore. Urban rebellions are occurring. In 67, on July 23rd, uh, the, the new chairman of SNCC, H. Rep. Brown, was giving a speech in Cambridge, and one of his comments was, if Cambridge will not come around, we need to burn her down. Now, those words were not, did not, inspire any Black people to burn anything. What those words did was inspired the Klan to clandestinely start burning down uh, churches and business, uh, not churches, schools and businesses. When that happened, Cambridge exploded on national news. The next day, July 24th, Detroit exploded with an urban rebellion where 34 or so people were killed in Detroit. And that summer of 67, uh, 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 communities around the country started exploding in violent rebellion. Um, you can make an argument. That Cambridge started that because in 63, in July, we were the first small city to explode in a um, urban rebellion against police brutality and against segregation. Don't forget, 64 and 65 civil rights acts were passed, and still there was no, there was no relief to civil rights and voting rights three years after those acts were passed. That's why people were very upset. And by the way, they were mostly upset at police brutality. Every rebellion, every rebellion occurred in this country, in every city, started by police brutality. It wasn't police brutality that created the rebellion. It was accumulation of unjust treatment. The police brutality sparked the rebellion. That's exactly what happened in Cambridge and in Detroit.
it's fascinating, Bernard, because we started out talking about this, right? I mean, that, you know, this is so long ago, and yet uh, I think you must have seen echoes of that in the last few years uh, as, as things happening around the country. And I guess I kind of wanted you to ref well, reflect on that. Well, that that's exactly right. See, the brilliance of the George Floyd Black Lives Matter movement, the brilliance of that movement was one slogan, no justice, no peace. It's a very simple equation. If you treat people right, if you give people dignity, if you respect who they are, if you give them the opportunity to go to any, any school, get any job, live in any kind of housing that is available to them, if you give them that justice, you're going to have peace. And where there is no justice, there is no peace. And that's exactly what happened with George Floyd. It wasn't just George Floyd. It was years and years of police brutality that accumulated into an explosion that was that was as, as i would argue and you can people can argue against me but i would suggest this that george floyd is was the modern day emmett till mm -hmm. what happened with emmett till is that we visibly this visibly viciously and 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 viscerally we saw what white supremacy was all about it was about violence. And that's what we saw with George Floyd. We visibly saw visceral violence committed by white supremacists like Derek Chauvin. And what? who else? Uh, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, Eric, Eric uh, 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 Jones, um, et cetera, et cetera, Freddie Gray. All of these explosions started with Trayvon Martin caught... Um, uh, uh, Trayvon Martin caught on the video of him explaining what was going on that evening. That viral, visceral viral, uh, just kept building and building until people said no more when it happened to George Floyd. George well, Floyd is a modern day episode. Well, and I guess, you know, and, and you, as somebody who leads tours, and so I know you think about this, right? Um, I think so often the folks, you know, they don't know their own history or they don't know, or maybe they only know bits and pieces of it. And, you know, when those kind of things happen, when we see them, it's not that it's not that people in that community and those communities didn't know about injustice. They, they lived it every day. They live it to, the, to this day, right? It's that, you know, when, when there's an Emmett Till, when there's, you know, so George Floyd with the video that people see it where you can no longer ignore it or it becomes too much. And I guess it kind of wanted you to, to, to react to that because it's, it's, these, it's not, these were not news flashes to people. Well, I, th I, th I think you're right. I think what you're suggesting is that we don't really teach our history truthfully. And as long as we can keep the lynchings and the massacres and the, 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 the brutality against African-Americans all over the country, um, uh, as long as we keep that away from good, everyday, decent Americans, and, what, and I'm talking about white Americans, good, everyday, decent white Americans, if they don't know that's that, that history of violence, 
until they see it either on TV, you know, like the uh, 65 Selma Bridge, people saw the violence by the police against peaceful protesters, John Lewis and uh, Amelia Beer, uh, Boyt, Boyton, Boyton. Now, people saw it, then they reacted to it. Uh, people saw George Floyd and they reacted to it. You know, what? what was fascinating about the summer of 2020, if you look closely at the crowds, 26 million people demonstrated in the summer of 2020, more in the summer of 2020 than all demonstrations together uh, in the last uh, 100 years. Now, if you look at the crowds, they were as much white and brown and Asian as they were black. And they were as much young and old as they were young. They were as much gay and straight as, as straight. What you had was a very diverse explosion of anger at what happened to George Floyd. For nine minutes and 29 seconds, people watched in horror. Now, it was a perfect storm, as you well know. We were all home. Why are we home? Because of the pandemic. We had nothing to do but watch TV. And as we watch TV, as we watch TV and we watch this over and over and over, we get angrier and angrier. And good American white people got up and said, enough is enough. And so this was the turning point, I think, is there was a really important, diverse demonstration. that, And young people are still doing it today. And they're particularly doing it around issues of climate change and housing. And I think those are two really important nuts uh, for the future. Just one more question and we wrap up. Um, so what I'm thinking is, and, and you brought that together beautifully. Thank you. I guess what I want to do is sort of put your, your historian's hat on, you know, when you're leading these stories, when you're talking, uh, you know, whether it's about uh, Frederick Douglass or Harriet Tubman, or you're leading a tour at the African American Museum of History. Um, and I'd like for you to sort of reflect on, you know, what are the kinds of, I will say that just somebody who leads, you know, labor tours, um, my favorite thing is when I get to talk to folks, right, and find out things from from them. And I always talk to them about, you know, wherever you're from, there's labor history in that community. It's probably not going to have a statue. It's probably not going to have a plaque, uh, but it's there. And, and our friend Saul Schneiderman always talks about, you know, dig where you are. And so I guess I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on on that as somebody who I feel is doing, a, you know, certainly an oral tradition of, of keeping history alive. Well, what I think is important after a tour is to do at least 20 minutes of debriefing. Hmm. And so after every tour, I ask people a couple simple questions. What did you learn? What new information did, did, did you learn? What can you do with this new information? And what was your aha moment? And I ask these questions and, I, and then I always say, what could I have done better to make a better tour? But the important thing is to get people to talk about what they learn. Just to tour them and be emotionally distraught at the images or the history they see is pretty much a downer. I want them to, I want them to express not only what they learn, but what, how they can use it. Now, to your point, however, every one of us have to work, or at least most of us have to work. Maybe Jeff Bezos does. I don't, I don't know if Elon Musk works or not, but 
95, 98% of us have to work every day. And we want to be treated fairly and we want to be treated with respect at work. Whether it's we are a carpenter or 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 we 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 fill potholes out in the street or whether we're a teacher or whether we are um working in the back room of a restaurant. We want to be treated fairly. And so what we are doing is that we are giving our labor to somebody to make a, a, a profit and to make a job work for everybody. And we just want to be treated fairly. And so what I try to emphasize to everybody is that, look, please, just because you think you're a, a, a professor or a specialist teacher or something that you don't work for a living, you do. And every one of us have to be treated with respect and dignity because our work is valuable. Such an important lesson. My, uh, my dad, who was a labor historian, he had a, he had a formulation of that that I always thought was uh, useful, especially these days when I think people get confused about, you know, whether they're workers or not. He said, you know, you either work for somebody or people work for you. That's there's, there's no, there's no in between. <laughs> I think a lot of a lot of folks want to think that they're not really workers, and they think about it like, oh yeah, yeah, I do work for somebody. Somebody's paying me. Well, I think that's what's exciting about the um, barista movement. I think that's what's exciting about uh, restaurant workers and even back of the room workers and people who pour coffee. People who who do the coffee at these very uh, high high end coffee shops, you know, uh, they get abused and. Finally, they're they're coming around to saying we we can't take it anymore, um, and also that also the pandemic has helped with that as well. Um, this is a really crucial moment, and we're seeing a reaction, of course. And let me close with this: we're seeing a reaction, and here's why we're seeing a reaction. I think, as ugly and as pronounced as white supremacy is today particularly with the white supremacist in chief by the name of Donald Trump. As dangerous as it is right now, that is dying and they are on their last breath and they keep striking back because they know, and we saw this in the election just a couple of weeks ago. They know that America, it will be majority minority in just 20 short years and it's about time to get on the right side of history. Perfect way to end, Bernard. It's been wonderful. I have to thank my friends at the RJ Films Band for bringing us together. And I have a feeling this will not be our last visit with you. So thank you so much. Hey, thank you, Chris. And keep, keep doing the labor history. We need to learn what you got inside that brain there. And we appreciate your efforts. Thank you, Chris. Thanks. Take care. Thank you. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. Often, significant days in history pass with little attention. This day in labor history is one such day. The year was 1811, and Charles Deslandes, an enslaved sugar laborer in the New Orleans Territory, led what became one of the largest slave revolts in American history. The Deslandes family, along with Charles, had been in Haiti during the slave uprising of the Haitian Revolution. They fled the revolution to what was then called the German Coast, an area of sugar plantations northwest of New Orleans. On the evening of January 8th, Charles 
led an insurrection at the Andre Plantation. The insurrection grew as enslaved laborers marched down the Mississippi River armed with axes, hoes, and a few firearms. They burnt plantations on their march. It's estimated that as many as 500 enslaved laborers joined the revolt over the two-day march. The revolution was put down brutally, however, by plantation owners and their militias, as well as federal troops who killed more than 90 of the revolting slaves. The plantation bosses with their militias and the federal troops hung some of the bodies of those who took part in the revolt on poles as warnings to other enslaved people. Such uprisings ushered in an era of brutal repression, as authorities worried that the Haitian Revolution could spread to the U.S. South. Slave codes, the laws that undergirded the slave system, became more strict and oppressive, yet enslaved people continued their effort for freedom until they finally won emancipation more than five decades later. And what happened to Charles Deslandes, you may ask? Well, he was captured by the militia. As Samuel Hamilton described, Charles had his hands chopped off, then shot in one thigh and then the other, until they were both broken, then shot in the body. And before he had expired, he was put into a bundle of straw and roasted. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. And that's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Our music today was Cambridge Town by the R.J. Phillips Band. Find more of their great music on SoundCloud. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history. And see you next time.
Cambridge Town.